This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. listening to jazz as long as we get them listening to jazz because if we don't they'll be lost to the voice and to all these other mindless stupid programs that are foisted upon us by people who think they're controlling the tastes of our nations my goal is to live the truly religious life and express it through my music If you can live it, there's no problem about the music, because it's part of the whole thing. The discerning words of American jazz saxophonist and composer John Coltrane. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. Is music replacing religion as a new focus for public devotion? On this week's show, music critic and writer Richard Havers talks me through his spiritual journey with Blue Note Records the iconic jazz label that has produced jazz legends such as Wayne Shorter, Thelonious Monk, Sonny Rollins, Herbie Hancock, Art Blakey, Miles Davis and John Coltrane. And is silence a vital part of what is missing in human history? Award-winning historian and writer Dermot McCullough unpacks the impulse to be silent in Christian history. This is a show about passion and personality, intensity and music, artistic vision and the silence in between. But first, uncompromising expression, 75 years of the finest in jazz. Without doubt, Blue Note Records is one of the most original and important music labels in the history of popular music. Founded in 1939 by Alfred Lyne, Blue Note has continually blazed a trail of innovation in both music and design. Its catalogue of great albums and long-playing records is for many the holy grail of jazz. And I think it's fair to say, and yeah, shoot me, I am a fan, that Blue Note is the arbiter of cool. Well, the first official illustrated history of Blue Note Records, Blue Note Uncompromising Expression, 75 Years of the Finest in Jazz, has just been published by Thames and Hudson and is one heck of a classy read. Uncompromising Expression by Richard Havers celebrates seven decades of extraordinary music, tracing the evolution of jazz from boogie-woogie and swing of the 1930s through bebop, hard bop, the avant-garde and fusion to the eclectic mix Blue Note releases today. The book also narrates a complex social history from the persecution of the Jews in Nazi Germany to the developments in music and technology in the 20th century. Well, over the weekend, I got a chance to talk with the book's author, Richard Havers, from his home in London. I asked Richard one simple question. Did Blue Note change his life? No. Verve changed my life. Verve Records changed my life because that was the record label that got me into jazz. Blue Note enriched my life beyond almost my imagination. Because when I, I didn't come to Blue Note until I was, oh, probably, first Blue Note record I bought, I was probably 21 maybe, whereas the first 
true jazz record I bought, actually was probably a Count Basie 78 in the 50s, and that was for a penny at a jumble sale. But the first jazz album I bought was Verve, on Verve it was Jimmy Smith, and it was Peter and the Wolf, the album. And I bought it because I was trying to impress my dad that modern music wasn't all a waste of space. Because look, they're playing Prokofiev. It must be good. He didn't agree with me. But that allowed me to start exploring jazz. And once I'd found Blue Note, like so many people, I went on this amazing journey. And my, my journey on Blue Note largely went backwards into the 50s and, and 60s. And in the early 70s, you know, I, I remember hearing um, Donald Byrd's Blackbird, and I liked that. But I wasn't as keen on that as I was keen on, on early Blue Note. And later on, actually, I became more keen on Donald Byrd's Blackbird album. Probably, I, I, I probably got into that maybe 20 years ago, 20 years after it was recorded kind of thing. So it's been a fascinating journey, and it's, it's not been a, a chronological journey. It's been a journey of happenstance. You know, the beauty of Blue Note, of course, is the collegiate style of recording where you'd often see the same names popping up. I'd, I'd see a name and think, Oh, that's interesting. I wonder what, what his album's like, because I like his playing on that particular album. You know, I'm thinking of um, Art, Art Blakey, for example. You know, I, 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 I came across Art Blakey's Moaning album. That was probably the first Art Blakey I'd ever heard. And on there I see Lee Morgan on trumpet. So that's what encourages me to go and buy a, a Lee Morgan album. And I, the first one I bought, perhaps inevitably, was Sidewinder. So my journey has been one of, of, of going through this music in a non-logical, non-chronological way. And it's been brilliant. And I suppose, like the musicians that you've named, it's been an improvised journey. Oh, totally. Totally. But I think that applies to all music. I've never been a fan of, you know, I like particular artists, some more than others. But I'm not a fan in that fanatic sense. You know, if you take the word fan, I would say there's, you know, like plenty of people before me have said, there's two kinds of music, there's good music and there's the other kind. And so my, you're right, my journey has been improvised. I'd, I'd stumble across things and that would lead me off into something else. And it hasn't been, a, it wasn't a journey that I made by looking at records and going, ah, it's on blue note, it must be good. I possibly would say it would be I'd get into an artist and I'd maybe go and listen to some of their recordings on other labels. You know, in the 50s in particular, artists didn't sign to a particular label. They made a record because somebody offered them money to make the record. It wasn't in the sense that we think of in, modern, in the modern era where, you know, XYZ record label signed somebody. Um, you know, Miles is a good example. Miles you know, recording the early days for Blue Note. He then went to Prestige, and then he ends up at Columbia. But in the meantime, he also appears on uh, Cannibal Adderley's Something Else album, which, to all intents and purposes, could be a Miles Davis album. So listening to Miles, for example, I started listening to Miles by listening to Miles on Columbia and Bitches Brew. And it was that jazz rock that got me interested. And then I went on a journey backwards through through Miles's catalogue, and, and you know, inevitably I find Kind of Blue in there, and inevitably I, 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 I go to Birth of the Cool, which was on Capital, not on, on Blue Note. Of course there are albums that I don't particularly like and I don't play, but even the ones that I don't, 
play and I don't particularly like, I know they're a quality record. And if you go through who Blue Note have worked with over the last 75 years, it's just incredible. You cannot think about jazz without thinking about Blue Note. I'm just wondering though about its founder, Alfred Lyne. He's an amazing guy. He'd huge integrity and he'd tremendous artistic vision. But his own backstory, apart from setting up Blue Note, is really, really interesting, isn't it? And as much as I'm a a jazz lover and a music lover, I'm fascinated by cultural history. And the idea of this German Jew who escaped the Nazi regime in the 1930s, a, a Nazi regime, of course, that absolutely hated jazz and anything to do with it. It was it was abhorrent to everything that the Nazis stood for, which of course is another reason why jazz is so brilliant. But you know, here we are. Alfred Lyon escapes Nazi Germany. He, he visited New York in the late 1920s, first of all, because of his love of jazz, goes back to Germany, then leaves and ends up in New York in 1936. And he, he didn't arrive in New York with the idea of, I think I'll form a record label. Even when he recorded those first sides in 1939, he, he wasn't doing it with the thought of particularly founding a record label. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a notion that you'd really have. He just felt it was important to record that music. He was moved by uh, what Albert Hammonds and, and, and uh, Meadlux Lewis played, and he thought it was important that people heard that. And actually, that underpinned everything that Alfred Lyon did throughout all the time that he owned, the two-plus decades of, of, of his association with Blue Note Records. Everything he did, he did because he thought it was important and should be recorded, which inevitably means that some of what he recorded wasn't as successful as others. But his huge, you use the word integrity, his huge integrity, um, both to what he was recording and his commitment to the artists that he was recording and allowing them. This is a really fascinating, to me, this is a fascinating point, and I think it's one of the reasons why Blue Note stands out above just about every other label. Alfred Lyon paid for his artists who were going to record an album to do two days' rehearsal before they made a record. Every other label did not do that. They just said, right, you've got a session, we're booking you for a session on this day, see you in the studio, and if these guys are working musicians. They didn't have time to sort of practice and rehearse. But Alfred, maybe, you know, without sounding too cliched, it was the German in him. He was efficient and he wanted these guys to be at the top of their game, which is one reason, I think, why you don't, you rarely hear a, a bad Blue Note album because these guys have, have rehearsed and they played it. And generally speaking, and certainly in the, in the 1950s and in the 1960s, albums were recorded in a day, in one session. And he wanted his artists to play longer. He wanted them to breathe and have more room. And he moved from the 10-inch to the 12-inch, which was very innovative when you think about it, because that was more like what classical musicians did. Absolutely. On, I mean, back in the, in the 1930s, on 78 RPM records, if you recorded popular music, whether it be um, you know, the, the kind of stuff that would um, you'd call a popular song, pop music as such, um, was on a 10-inch. And as you say, that classical was on a 12-inch. And he felt that this music was important. It shouldn't be truncated and bit chopped out. I mean, you wouldn't chop out the middle of a movement of a Mozart piano sonata or whatever just to fit it on a record. And he felt exactly the same way about playing jazz. The numbers that 
Mead Lux and Albert Ammons played, you know, they had a start, middle and end. They didn't need to have a bit of the middle chopped out. And I think throughout, again, throughout his career, he allowed his musicians to stretch out and play. And if, if it was a 10-minute track, so be it. It made releasing singles quite tricky in the 50s because obviously you can only fit so much on the side of a 45 and you know singles were still important to any record label because that's how you got your music heard because you put it on a jukebox jukeboxes were everywhere in the in the in the 40s and 50s but it it, it did create certain issues but he, he was always always keen that everything was one of the things I was fascinated to read about was how he facilitated different performers and musicians, whether it was artists with heroin problems, with drink problems. If you look at Thelonious Monk, he was a very gifted, visionary musician, but also a very difficult man and hugely eccentric. If you look at Miles Davis, he'd a lifetime problem with booze. While recording with Blue Note, he certainly struggled with heroin. If you look at some of the other big names, he seemed to be able to see the big picture, didn't he? Absolutely. And I think that when you see pictures of Alfred, I mean, a straighter looking guy you could not wish to see. But he, again, and maybe... You know, without being too much of the amateur psychologist, maybe why what he'd struggled against in his early life and what he'd seen happen in in Germany, it made him more tolerant. It made him more understanding of these men, and they were largely men. I mean, there's hardly any women recorded for Blue Notes during Alfred's era. He allowed these men to express themselves, and it goes right the way back to the name of the book and to the, what was in the original manifesto for Blue Note Records in, in 1939. It's uncompromising expression, and Alfred lived completely by that. Back in those days, and back, certainly in the jazz world, there were plenty of people with issues and problems and, and, and so on, and either you, you worked with it or stuff didn't happen, and Alfred certainly worked with it brilliantly. And in that uncompromising expression, whether you look at Wayne Shorter or John Coltrane, you get this tremendous burst of emotion, don't you? It's so unbelievably intense. And in some ways, when I think of Blue Note, that's what it really is. That's what it's all about. That's, I think that's really true. I think there's passion. You know, I love passion in anything. And, and I think Blue Note oozes passion and, 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 and intensity and, you know, there's not much throwaway stuff on a Blue Note record. And I think, too, and this goes back to allowing musicians time to rehearse, you find many more original compositions on Blue Note than you find on other labels. There's very often reworkings of standards on Verve and on Prestige and, 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 and Riverside and Columbia. You know, because he allowed these artists the time to work on these songs, they were their songs. They weren't just, you know doing another version of, you know, a, a, a standard, which isn't to say there aren't some great. I mean, I'm thinking, again, I mentioned it earlier, something else, um, Cannibal Adderley with Miles Davis. There's, there's that beautiful version of, of, of Dancing in the Dark on there and, and um, Autumn Leaves. But within it, there was so much original music, original compositions, both by the band leaders or, or by, the, um, by members of, of the band, that they were allowed that, that opportunity to express themselves. And in so doing, of course, these are the first time we've heard those pieces of music. And the, the, there is a magic in that.
whereas when you're hearing something that is a, a rehash or cover, very often there isn't quite that intensity. Now, one of the very pleasurable parts to your book is looking at all the different album covers. They are iconic. They're works of art. They're as artistic as the music. Do you think some people are drawn to Blue Note purely by the record sleeves? Oh, no question. I, I've known people who've bought Blue Note records because of the covers. Uh, and I have to admit, in, not Blue Note, but, in, but when I was younger, I've bought things because of the covers. But you're right. I mean, it, they are the complete package, even down to the centres of the records. You know, that beautiful piece of design that was done for the first original 78 with Blue Note on it, which pretty much stayed with the label all the way through. I mean, that basic look through to the record covers, through to the fact that Lionel always commissioned good writers to write the sleeve notes. There was that early period where he had to suddenly retool all his 78 into LPs when LPs came along and with the 10-inch LPs. Initially, they didn't have sleeve notes on the back, but very quickly, they had really brilliant essays about the music, often written by great jazz critics, I'm thinking Leonard Feather for one, but sometimes by the artists themselves who talked eloquently about why they'd recorded a particular piece or why this album was important to them. And so you, you bought in on this whole package and, you know, the cover itself in, in sort of early 50s onwards, it was Reed Miles, the, the, the brilliant designer who designed virtually all of the covers between 1954 and the mid-60s. And his cover art is so, use the word iconic, and it is, and it was so influential. You know, he's, we've all seen albums in the last 40 years that have been, if not copies, but strongly influenced by Reed Miles. What makes it fascinating is that Reed Miles didn't like jazz. That's very interesting, isn't it? He just was good at his job. He was brilliant. And he was a classical music fan. And interestingly, too, and you mentioned Frank Wolf, who took the pictures and who was Alfred's partner, who was also a German Jew, who Alfred helped to escape from Germany in September. After war was declared, he escaped from Germany on one of the last, on the last boat out to Sweden. And he took those beautiful pictures of jazz artists you know if anybody thinks of a a, a picture of a jazz artist now basically what they're imagining is a frank wolf shot because he made that style of photography completely his own and he would get really annoyed with reed miles because reed miles would crop his shots he thought he'd taken them perfectly in the first place why did reed want to crop them and so there was apparently there was a sort of an ongoing thing between them where reed would get his chinograph pencil out and say yeah i don't want all this image i just want this bit and uh, you know francis was a was an artist in his own right and there was the, there was that battle of artists going on um, I, i'm sure alfred had to um adjudicate on occasions do you think alfred realized what his impact will be on popular culture no what alfred Lyon was doing was largely living from hand to mouth. He didn't make a huge amount of money out of Blue Note until he sold it. And then, by our standards, it probably wasn't a huge amount of money. I mean, it was a a very comfortable amount of money and that enabled him to retire. But throughout the time that he ran Blue Note, from 1939 through to 66, it was very much what he made. He ploughed back into making more records. And so, while I think he thought it was you know, what he did was good, and he obviously was very proud of, of, of certain artists and, and probably a large part of what he did. He wasn't, he, I don't think he was thinking about his legacy or thinking about creating this thing. It wasn't until about 1960 that he actually even set up a distribution deal with a British company, for example, to allow Blue Note Records 
into the UK. If you wanted to buy a Blue Note record and you lived in, in Britain or in Ireland or in most of Europe, you had to ride off to America to buy it. So I don't think it was as, you know, we can't think of, in a way, we can't think of how record companies were run in those days and compare them to how business is today, not just record companies. It wasn't so clearly thought out. And yet, Alfred Lyon, in his initial press releases and all of the supporting literature that got put out, you could see that sense of design, that strong sense of design that he felt, and he, he wanted things to be the best they possibly could. And I think that was his, his amazing gift. He always always wanted everything to be absolutely as good as it could be. Now, Richard, when you look at the glory days or when we listen to the glory days of Blue Note Records and then we look at the last 15 years, do you think in some way that Alfred Lyne would be disappointed with the radical creative changes taking place in Blue Note Records today? Because if we look at the direction under their new chief executive and maybe just look at the last 10 years... Some of it is very disappointing. I wouldn't use the word disappointing. I would just say it, it's very different. Music, when, when Alfred Lyon sold the company in 67, uh, Francis Wolfe stayed there until the early 70s. And then you had that period where, as I mentioned earlier, Donald Byrd came along and Bobby Humphreys and other artists like that. People who loved Blue Note from the 50s and 60s thought the Antichrist had been foisted upon them. They hated it absolutely hated it and yet without that music from the 70s a vast numbers of people in the 80s and 90s through hip-hop and through acid jazz wouldn't have discovered blue note records and what you've got now is artists like robert glasper who i think is one of the most gifted musicians playing today um he has clearly you know, uses the influence of hip-hop and he's, he, he explores all the way back through the Blue Note catalogue, but he's just trying to develop the music. And it might not be to everybody's taste, but it's... Nor is Andrew Hill. I can understand Bobby McFerrin, but I don't think Nora Jones is jazz. Nora Jones isn't jazz. I don't think she is jazz, but does it matter? It does matter. Why, why does it... In what way does it matter? It's music and it's great music and it's sold 20 million copies and that helped keep Blue Note alive and well and keeping Blue Note alive and well today allows many artists to continue to make records. Blue Note's got a new Wayne Shorter album coming, just done a, a Bobby Hutcherson album, Robert Glasper, a Gregory Porter is on Blue Note. Gregory Porter, Grammy winning, sold probably a million albums in Europe. That has brought people into the jazz tent and by bringing people into the jazz tent they go and explore backwards and they discover some of this great music not all of which will be to their liking but to me it doesn't matter how we get people listening to jazz as long as we get them listening to jazz because if we don't they'll be lost to the voice and to all these other mindless stupid programs that are foisted upon us by people who think they're controlling the tastes of our nation And that was music journalist and writer Richard Havers. Uncompromising expression, Blue Note, the finest in jazz, is published by Thames and Hudson and retails at about 55 euro in hardback. Now I know that's a lot of cash to be shanning out on one book. But trust me on this one, if you're a Blue Note fan, this book is really worth the big, big spend.
Uncompromising Jazz is an incredible book and a must-buy for any die-hard jazz fan. Okay, coming up next, we're going to slow down the pace of the show a bit and move from the world of noise to silence. But first, let's break to some more quality jazz. You're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company. Okay, let's now move into an entirely different space, the evolution of silence in Christian history. Dermot McCullough is Professor of the History of the Church at Oxford and a Fellow of St. Cross College, Oxford. He is also a Fellow of the British Academy and was knighted in 2012. In 1996, Dermot's stunning biography of Thomas Cranmer, the controversial and much maligned Archbishop of Canterbury, won the Whitbread Biography of the Year Award, the James Tate Black Prize and the Duff Cooper Prize. It's one outstanding read. I really recommend it. In 2003, Dermot's second book, Reformation, Europe's House Divided, 1490-1700, won the Wolfson Prize for History and the British Academy Book Prize. In 2009, these successes were followed up with A History of Christianity. This book went on to win the Kundal Prize, the world's largest history book prize, in 2010. Well, Dermot's latest venture, Silence, A Christian History, has recently been published by Alan Lane and is one remarkable and fascinating read, courageously charting Christianity's uncertain and problematic relationship to silence. It's a deeply perceptive, compassionate and worthwhile read and according to the great Melvin Bragg, essential reading for those enthralled by Christianity and for those enraged by it. High praise indeed. In Silence, A Christian History, Dermot writes, Power is often sustained by distortions of truth or reality, particularly when power takes the form of claiming a monopoly on truth. It is hardly surprising then that Christianity's most lasting and powerful monarchy, the papacy, has gathered to itself more silences of shame and distortion of the truth than any other sources of authority in the Christian tradition. Yet Protestants should not be complacent in their days of power. They have a good deal to answer for as well. 
Dermot ends his book on a truly hopeful note. He says silence has its own eloquence. Silence is allied to wordlessness and wordlessness is allied to music. Music plays the role of mediator between silence and words because it stretches between and melts into either polarity. Well, a few weeks ago, I gave Dermot a shout from his home in Oxford. We talked about the good and bad silences in the Christian story. I asked Dermot about the letters of St. Paul and what they reveal about the author's inspirational thinking on silence. The letters of Paul that we've got in the New Testament are older than the Gospels by several decades. And Paul never knew the physical Jesus in his life. He had an experience of Jesus after death. And he also is a great missionary, probably not the first missionary in Christianity, but he he ministered to communities beyond Judaism, and so that's what the letters are. And so we we get fragments of pictures of the the communities of the first Christians through Paul, and one thing you can say about them is that these are not silent people. They sing, they pray in crowded rooms together, they argue, and the arguments are there in Paul's letters. So straight away you, you say to yourself, well, actually early Christians don't look silent at all. And Paul doesn't sound like a silent person either. And so straight away in Paul, you've got those two really contrasting or contradictory things in Christianity. And we had the growth of hermits tearing themselves away from society and just contemplating. Yeah, the impulse to be silent, I think, goes back to Jesus. And, And Jesus is reflecting quite a minority thought in Judaism, that you get to God by withdrawing and being silent. But there's something beyond that, about monks, because monks live in community, monks or nuns, and the the strange thing about that, another strange thing about the Bible, is that they're not there. There's no trace of them. So the fact is that this thing that we think is automatic in Christianity, the monastic life, isn't there. And then you have to ask, well, where did it come from? Can we look at some of the big figures in monasticism? Silence would have been critical to how they lived and breathed their lives, so to speak. St. Dominic sticks out. Dominic is a fascinating re-founder of the monastic ideal because he was living in a, a time when the church was faced with a lot of dissent and the church decided to persecute those that, that were dissenting from the church. They were concentrated in the south of France. They were called the people of Albi, Albigensians. And so the church actually started a, a vicious military crusade again. And at the same time, once the church had clobbered these people, it sent out abbots and bishops to bully them back into the church. And Dominic was in the entourage of one of these guys and saw he was doing absolutely nothing at all. So he thought about going about it in a different way, preaching to these people from a position of simplicity and poverty because these bishops and abbots were going along in their finery and power, and that's precisely what the dissenters didn't like. So Dominic's mission was to preach to people alongside them in a humble way, and that's what the Dominican order came to be. And he called his preachers brothers, fratres in Latin, and that's where our word friar comes from. And the fascinating thing about Dominic's communities was that they were people who lived in community and they valued silence, but they lived in the world and they were very open to the outside world. So they built monasteries which weren't monasteries, which had an open door so that people could come in and meet friars when they were eating and ask them questions about their 
spiritual problems. So that's a unique contribution of Dominic. Now, one of the very interesting chapters you have is on silences for survival. And you're looking at the different structures in society and how some people were silent on their own personal religious spiritual beliefs or how they chose to forget about the traumas that happened to their particular cultural group. Yeah, there's uh, a long tradition of praising people who stand up for their faith in Christianity. We call them martyrs and we celebrate the martyrs in the early church. But actually a lot of those early martyrs are made up, they're fictions, and they were made up in the years of the church's power and wealth. And the church has never celebrated the opposite reaction, which is to save yourself by remaining silent. I think in the Protestant Reformation, a lot of Protestants who wanted to declare themselves didn't because they knew that the Catholic Church authorities would burn them at the stake. And similarly, a lot of Roman Catholics in Elizabethan England kept quiet about being Roman Catholics because they knew that it would ruin them financially, perhaps, or even worse, if they were openly Catholic. When you were going through the research, Dermot, were you shocked by some of the stories that you unearthed? Because there's some very shameful parts to our Christian history. There's so many contradictions. So how did that challenge you? Well, I think that I've been living with the Christian story for so long that I'm not surprised by Christian bad behavior. My father was a great enthusiast of history and he he was a, a parish priest in the Church of England. But he was also a tremendously open man who was perfectly happy in looking at the discreditable parts of the church. So I was given that cue and I've always felt that and uh, the church has not always treated me well and yet I've seen this as part of the church's natural state of being. It might sound odd to talk of the church's behaving badly as part of its natural state of being, but a wise old Methodist once said to me that you have to remember the church is the body of Christ, and the body of Christ is full of sores and wounds and always will be. That's its nature. And that seems to me a very wise thing to remember, although it is right to constantly try and call the church back to the best standards you can. Don't be disappointed if it doesn't follow. And I suppose the church is a reflection of the society that we live in today and its history. Yes, it is. And the church is a reflection of society because it is society in many ways. And that's the nature of Christianity. It's a religion which has a figure at the centre of it whom it says is divine, God, and yet who is a human being we can name in a particular piece of time and in a particular place in history. And that's what makes Christianity special and different from the other great world religions. Now, Dermot, one of the refreshing things I found as I was breezing through your book was that while there wasn't a lot of women in it, there certainly was a good few sprinkled through the pages. And obviously we have some incredible female mystics. A lot of the big names are women there. But it's surprising that there are a lot of Christian histories or a lot of reflective histories of our past that seem to eclipse women. It's because men have written the history and particularly celibate men. Churchmen wrote the history of the church. They regarded women as temptresses and the people who had betrayed Adam into eating that apple in the Garden of Eden. So they wrote women out of the story unless women conform to what they want. And the most conforming woman became the mother of God, Mary, who the church turned into ever-virgin, perpetual virgin, which actually contradicts the Bible. And the model of obedience and other types of women are really written out of the story, particularly women who held power. And in the very early days of the church, it's certainly obvious that there were women 
church leaders. And later on in the Middle Ages, there were great abbesses who wore mitres like bishops and within their little world, at least, were very powerful figures. Jeremy, you write very maturely and reflectively on the church's silence on issues of abuse and sexuality. Now, I imagine, given your background and also your academic position, that that must have been a very challenging thing to write about. And I can only imagine how possibly conflicted you could be professionally and personally when you're writing about this. Can you tell me about why you decided to bring up the church's silence on issues related to abuse? Well, I just don't think there's a problem about doing it. You you have to do it to give the church a sense of how badly it has gone off the rails in certain respects. And there are different degrees of the church being mistaken. It seems to me that if you take the church's attitude to child abuse, then the problem there is the church not living up to its own standards, not just the the abuse itself from clergy, but the cover-up. Now, in fact, the church feels very ashamed by that, and it's a shame because that is betraying its own standards, that clergy should live as well as anybody else. And in a curious way, that's the easiest one to deal with. I think the much more difficult ones are when you get down to questions like Christianity's attitude to slavery, because there, until about 250 years ago, every Christian in the world thought that slavery was part of God's creation. It was part of the fallen nature of the way our society is. Now, if I'd said to a room full of Christians 400 years ago, is slavery a bad thing and should be abolished completely? Not a single hand would have gone up to say yes. Nowadays, all Christians say slavery is a terrible thing and should be abolished, and it's our achievement to abolish it. The Bible doesn't give any impression at all that slavery is anything else but part of the regrettable structure of God's world. And so Christians followed the Bible, and now Christians don't follow the Bible. And you see how much more difficult that is for Christianity. But it's a very necessary thing to do, because what you need to accept in the end is that the Bible is wrong on this subject. And that gives you a clue that the Bible might be wrong on other things too. And you've got to use your God-given brains to see what those things might be. That's very interesting, how we all need to discern what really is true and authentic, and I suppose in terms of a value for ourselves. What have we learnt, Jarrett, in terms of the evolution of silence in society? What has society learnt? What are the great achievements of silence? Well, I think one of the great achievements and one of the nicest things, one of the most hopeful things about modern Christianity is that silence has become available outside the professional, so to speak. Once silence was the particular luxury of monks and nuns and friars and contemplatives. And now the retreat movement, which is so much part of all parts of the church. People go on retreat, go away perhaps even just for a weekend. But this movement, we don't realize, is really quite modern. I mean, it started in the 19th century. And I think that's very interesting that silence has been given back across the church. I think another great thing about silence in our modern age is the fact that some bad silences have ended. I think it has been nothing but good for the church to suddenly realize the great problem of covering up clerical child abuse. That's good for the church because it confronts the church with reality. It makes the church humble. It stops that poisonous clericalism, which has been the bane of Western Christianity. And what about the intimacy of silence in your own life, Dermot? Oh, there's a difficult area for anyone to investigate, really, in one's own personal life. I I value silence. I I value my own company, 
if you like. Well, I'm an only child, so I'm, I'm rather good at enjoying my own company. But it's very important to me, particularly as it slides into something which is equally important to me, and that's music. Some music has words, but a lot doesn't have words. Uh, and so it's a, it's a very interesting frontier, music, between silence and noise, because you can't imagine music a little silences. That's what shapes music. It's what gives it a pattern, a sanity. So music and silence are certainly linked for me and the beauty of sacred space. But there are challenges there in terms of how precious silence is, Dermot, because if you look at online media, Twitter, Facebook, there doesn't seem to be a lot of respect for silence in our modern busy world. That's because we tend to be, as human beings, addictive personalities. That's not new. The addictions may be new, but we've always had our addictions and it's our job to face them and control them. A bit like alcohol, one of our oldest human addictions. You can use it or misuse it. And last question, Dermot, what has been the greatest lesson for you in writing this book in terms of the lessons that have been handed down through Christianity on silence? What have we received or what has been that legacy and what should we be grateful for? I think we should be grateful for the fact that after all the bad things you can say about the church, and in my book I plumb the depths of the dark silences. I think we should be grateful the church is still there, giving us a sense of a link with past human beings, and a link to something we can't even put into words. And that is all available to us. It's an extraordinary, rich gift. And that was Professor Dermot McCullough from Oxford. Silence, a Christian History is published by Alan Lane and retails at about €15 in paperback. Now, I think for anyone interested in the theme of silence or in spirituality, or religion. I think you'll enjoy this book. There's a lot in it. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Next week, Talking Books will be looking at the life and literary legacy of one of the giants of American literature, Henry James, and celebrating International Women's Day through the portrait of a lady. The music today is predictable enough. It's Blue Note Records. Well, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Ronan Burnock, who helped out with this week's show, and to Marianne Kennedy and Paddy Donahue on sound. We've been talking books. I'd like to end the show today with some advice from the great Miles Davis, who once advised, don't play what's there, play what's not there.
Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.